Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Darkness. Sometimes life gets so dark that the world seems like it's spinning out of control. It seems like evil is going to win no matter what, and it is going to celebrate over us. And at times like that, the only logical way to respond appears to be despair. Or, you can always give up and move to sunny Florida. The imagery of darkness and its contrast with life is powerful, for we have all felt it. Micah is winding down, and today we're going to finish it. The trial itself is over. Israel has been found guilty. The verdict has come in. And God pronounced the sentence, the punishment. We find all of that at the end of chapter 6. That Israel will become desolate. It will be destroyed. That the people will be carried off into exile. And they will be carried off by a nation that's even worse than they are. Think for a moment about the height of Israel history. Of where she had been. From the crossing of the Red Sea. To David entering Jerusalem, dancing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. To Solomon building the temple of the Lord and the Holy Spirit descending upon that temple. And then consider Micah. How did it come to this? A barren wasteland. A thick darkness. And off to Babylon the people go. Micah chapter 7 is all about dealing with that reality. Of a nation that is guilty. Of God's judgment that has already started and is only about to intensify. The reality that the throne of David will be empty. The temple will be cast up in ruins and destroyed. The people will be slain or carried off into captivity. And Micah 7 wrestles with, how do you live in a time like that? How do you live in a time of societal upheaval? Maybe some of us can relate to that today. What are God's people to do? And so Micah 7 opens with this vivid picture. Of Israel's state. Woe is me, for I have become as the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. And the daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. 
Micah laments the status of his people. They are desolate. There is no good fruit left. They are consumed with evil desires. Those who are charged with executing justice would rather take a bribe. Even the best person is nothing more than a thorn bush. What a waste of a nation. That's a very terrible situation. But it gets worse. You cannot trust your friends or even your family. Sons betray their fathers and daughters, their mothers. There is nothing sacred left anymore. I mean, what worse news can you receive than this? That a man's enemies are the men of his own household. It is a people marked by deep betrayal, in wanton evil, in lusts and evil desires. And Micah laments the fall, the corruption, and the destruction of his nation. It is right to call these periods what they are. A dark time. It is right to lament when evil triumphs. It is right to mourn the loss of a holiness in a people. It is right to do these things. But it is wrong to despair. It is wrong to lose hope. One of the striking things I've noted about many evangelical leaders in the last decade or so is that they seem to take joy or glee in the fall and decline of our nation. Now let me be clear. I think every Christian, no matter their nation, should seek and desire good for their nation, for their people. Every Christian should work to make their people more Christian. And thus they should lament when the opposite is happening. When people call evil good and good evil. When people celebrate performers who are pretending to be Satan. They're not really pretending. At least not the worship of him. And yet, many evangelical leaders think that the lamenting of that sin, the lamenting of the loss in our culture, is somehow idolatrous. Now, of course, anything good can become idolatrous. Just as we can make loving our nation an idolatry, we can make opposing our nation an idol. I walked into a public school the other day. I coached my son's basketball team, and We use the public gyms, and I've come to love and respect these children that I'm coaching, wanting what is best for them. And as I looked upon the propaganda that faces them every day when they walk into these schools, all of them are public school, but my, my son, I got angry. I got sad. When I think of what our nation once was, though not perfect, to what it is today, when it does not know what is good or what is evil, doesn't know men from women, the proper response is to lament. Saying that the advance of evil is in in itself a good thing is hogwash. Will God bring good out of this evil? Of course he will. He always does. But the evil itself is not good. This is why the words of Francis Schaeffer in his last book that he wrote, The Great Evangelical Disaster, shook me. When I read them, for I feel this is the proper response that we should have. He wrote this. Do not take this lightly. It is a horrible thing for a man like myself to look back and see my country and my culture go down the drain in my own lifetime. It is a horrible thing that 60 years ago you could move across this country and almost everyone, even non-Christians, would have known what the gospel was. A horrible thing that 50 to 60 years ago, our culture was built on the Christian consensus. And now this is no longer the case. 
He wrote those words in 1984. Ronald Reagan was president. Sometimes I wonder, what would he have to say to us today, 40 years later with the evils that we are dealing with? That is a proper response to the loss of holiness in a people. And that is what Micah was experiencing. The triumph of evil, betrayal and sin, a nation being judged. And we can relate. I want to make this point clear. You can relate to this on the national level, the societal level, and the personal level. Dark times are not just cultural. You can go through personal dark times when it seems like you will never see the light again, where the darkness will not lift. We all know that feeling. If you live long enough, you will experience it. If you haven't experienced that yet, you will. But we have to note this, that this has happened in Micah times, and it has happened in times all throughout world history. It's not new. Let me give you some examples here from church history. In 64 AD, Rome was burned. The emperor at the time was Nero. As the old story goes, Nero was fiddling on the roof as his city burned. That story turns out to most likely not be true at all. But Nero received just about all of the blame from the people of Rome for the burning of the city. And when he came back, he tried everything he could to clear his name and to bribe the people and to give them good things so that they would no longer blame him. None of it worked. So he came up with a new plan. He blamed the Christians. He blamed the Christians. And that set off an intense persecution of the church. Many Christians were killed for their faith. We believe that St. Peter was killed during this time. One Roman historian described Nero's persecution of the Christians this way. He said, some Christians were dressed in furs and killed by the dogs. Others were crucified or burned alive to light the night. Nero would literally kill the Christians for something they did not do on a cross and set them ablaze so that they could light the Roman night. Darkness. In 155 AD, another round of persecution kicked off in the Roman Empire. Polycarp was an influential teacher of the church at that time. In fact, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. After many Christians were killed during this wave of persecution and they were searching for Polycarp, he was dragged into the amphitheater and he was asked, like all the other Christians, to either recant or die. The Roman governor reportedly said this to Polycarp. He said, have respect for your old age. Say, Away with the atheists. That was the crying Christians were charged with. They were atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. And in return, Polycarp pointed at them, that is the Romans. And he said this, Away with the atheists. And then he said, 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king, the one who saved me? He was burned alive. Darkness. Darkness. Don't think it was just the early church. There was an early forerunner to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, named John Huss. And he taught, radically I know, that the Catholic Church should only be listened to when it aligns with Scripture. This was 1400s in Europe. Huss was following the teachings of Scripture, as put forward by John Wycliffe, who was already dead. Huss was arrested, 
given a chance to recant, but he would not, so he was burned alive at the stake. And for good measure, the Catholic Church saw fit to dig up John Wycliffe's bones and burn them, too. Darkness. It's nothing new. The supposed triumph of evil over good is often short-lived. Rome would become Christian. For the killing of individuals like, like Jan Hus, the Protestant Reformation would break out. We get Martin Luther and John Calvin. Throughout the rest of the book of Micah, we are given an example, though, of how do we live through this darkness. Darkness is a given. It will come in cycles throughout history. How do we endure this? And one of the main things the Bible tells us to do in times like this is to remember. The darkness presses in. It lies to us. It wants us to only see that which is dark and to forget everything else and give up. But we are to remember. This is the great weapon of evil. That we would despair. That we would keep living in fear. That we would think everything is hopeless. That darkness will never break. That we are in for an eternal night. That evil is too strong and cannot be overcome. And this leads us to apathy, cowardice, and despair. And so evil goes unchallenged. There's a vivid picture of this in The Lord of the Rings. I know, I know. I'm a nerd. And if you haven't read the book, just bear with me for a moment. As Frodo sits on the slopes of Mount Doom, literally within walking distance of victory, it's right within reach, he succumbs to despair. He says to his friend and his companion Sam this. He says, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark. There's nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. Sam, of course, as good friends should do, reminds him that this is a lie, that there is truth, that there is something beyond this darkness. And he helps him. We all need others in our lives at times like that. Because we have a tendency to magnify our problems and then spiral into despair. And we can forget the light. And that's what Micah reminds us to not do. He says, remember the light. We read this. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and will, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, and now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Micah turns to the Lord in his darkness, and he says he will wait upon the Lord. That even as he sits there, and there is no earthly reason for hope, the Lord will be his light. The darkness is a lie. It is not the end of the story. Life wins, death loses. Good wins, evil loses. God wins, Satan loses. And so Micah tells his enemies to not rejoice over Israel's defeat. Because when I fall, I shall rise. And then he speaks of the defeat of his enemies. There are strong, very strong resurrection themes here. It is through an initial defeat 
that the enemies of God are defeated. Is that not what we see at the cross of Christ? Christ is defeated upon that cross, and yet it is his victory in our victory. God works in ways that are strange to us. A key to living in dark times is to not forget that the Lord is our light. It is to remember that life swallows up death and victory through Christ. It is to trust that Christ's resurrection is the most powerful force in this universe. If death has lost its sting, what can men do to us? How did these martyrs face certain death? Because Christ overcame death. Strike me down and I will rise again. And even in this, Micah admits that the people have sinned. He knows the judgment is just, but he still trusts the Lord who is his salvation. He looks past the darkness. He looks past its temporary victory to the final victory of the light. Or as one musician puts it, This darkness is a small and passing thing. It is not eternal. It is not the last word. It is not all-powerful. Even the darkness is used to bring about good and light. Evil is ever self-destructing, sowing the seeds of its own defeat. And we keep getting told that our faith is is backwards. It's it's outdated. It's self-destructive. It's bigoted. Yeah, you guys are certainly going to win. You who kill all of your offspring and won't have any or have sexual unions that can't have any. Yeah, you guys are going to win. Brothers and sisters, I'm your shepherd. You're my sheep. I pray for you regularly. You know this. And I know that in this room, you face a myriad of different darknesses and challenges. I know the broken families. I know the betrayals, the illnesses, the robbing of your rights, the kids who won't talk to you, the loved ones running headlong into sin. I know the cultural evils and lies that are furthering this feeling of defeat that you should just give up. I'm not a pastor who lives in some monastery who's not paying attention to what's going on. Should we just give up? No. It's a lie. The darkness is a lie. When we fall down, we shall rise because we are in Christ and he has already risen. So he says, take heart. That though you face evils in this world, I have already overcome the world. In the darkness of life, remember the light. Remember that light casts out the darkness. Remember that the new creation will come. And in the new creation we read that Christ will be the sun. He will be our light and there will be no dark, there will be no nighttime, but only an eternal light. Darkness is a liar, the light wins. Magnify that in your heart. The second thing we can do in living in dark times is closely tied to that first. Don't forget that God wins. He wins. Look at verses 14 through 17. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations will see and be ashamed of all their might, and they will lay down their hands on their mouths, 
and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling, trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Micah is dealing with the pain of his country being destroyed and scattered, and he reminds himself, the people, that the Lord will again shepherd them. He will shepherd you. He will again deliver you like he did in the Exodus. He will again lead you into good lands. He will do things. He will bring you into a garden-like thing again. And through this, the nations will be converted and God will do mighty and wonderful things in their midst. And they will see the nations, that is. They will see and be ashamed and turn to the Lord in dread and fear. For they will see his power. The Lord is a good shepherd and he will save his sheep. He will kill the wolves and he will win. There are strong recreation themes all throughout this passage. The people are in the midst of a garden land brought into this new creation, this new Eden, this new garden. It's no longer desolate, no longer riddled with thorns and thistles, but a garden like Eden that is bursting with the blessings and the favor of the Lord. God will restore the paradise that we have lost. And this comes through the overthrowing of his enemies. Consider, consider these words about rebellious nations. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. Does that ring any bells to you? You should have little alarms going off in your head, pointing you back to Genesis chapter 3. You should be hearing the echoes of that first gospel promise. That God says in the midst of the fall, in the midst of the judgment, that he will bring an offspring from the woman. And he will crush the head of the serpent. And the curse upon the serpent is that he will go about eating dust. The battle that we face is between darkness and light, good and evil. Your life in this world is a part of that battle. It is a battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Between Christ and his people people, and the tempter between God and Satan. And they will, like their master, lick the dust of the ground. Those who will not repent and believe will be shown to be children of the serpent and they will be treated as thus. How do you endure the darkness? Remember that God wins and the wicked lose. Judgment is coming. The verdict has been declared. And the evil one and all of his works, and all who partner with him, will be cast into eternal darkness. The final thing for us to remember in dark days is the faithfulness of the Lord, to remember his character. These closing verses of Micah are some of the most beautiful verses you will find in all of Scripture. Despite the judgment, despite the trial, despite everything that Israel has done wrong, we read this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. So you have sworn to our father from the days of old. So I told you at the beginning of this series that the name Micah, his name, as the book opens, it gives him his name. His name literally means, who is like the Lord? 
And here the book ends. We got this nice little sandwich here, these two pieces of bread, where it says, Who is a God like you? It opens with Micah's name. Who is like you, God? It ends with, Who is a God like you? This book reveals to us who God is, what his character is, and we get this nice summary statement at the end of the book. And Micah explains the glory of the Lord, especially in light of their judgment. He cites Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, we have that right after the golden calf incident. Israel had plunged into sin right away. And Moses is there. He's making new tablets of stone. And we get this description of his character. It's been abounding in mercy and steadfast love that he will forgive his people and pass over their transgressions. And here we see that this, the Lord will also tread our sins under his feast. He'll crush the serpent with his heel. He will cast our sins into the deeps of the ocean, hearkening back to the prophecies of the new covenant in Jeremiah. Even with all of our technology today, if you were to throw something into the deepest part of the ocean, into the Mariana Trench, we still couldn't get it back. That's our sins. That's the hope. That's the promise. And the Lord will do this, we read, because of his faithfulness. Because of his covenant loyalty, his chesed, his steadfast love. He will do so because he has promised to Jacob and to Abraham that he will do so. How do you press forward in darkness? Trust in the faithfulness of God. His character is perfect. We are different from him. Though we are sinners, he is holy. Though we are unfaithful, he is faithful, and his faithfulness is like the mighty mountains. Though we are weak, he is strong. He will do everything that he has said he will do, and you can take that to the bank. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God through Christ. So who is a God like the Lord? No one. The gods of the pagans were not faithful. They were petty, they were fickle, and they were self-serving. They did not forgive. The false gods of our day are just the same. But the Lord abounds in mercy, and through him our sins are forgiven. And may we never get over that. That upon that cross, God the Son exhausted the wrath of God the Father. That our sins have been cast into the deeps of the ocean. So much so that Paul says that now, Right now, there is no condemnation left for those in Christ. Not future tense, but right now, there is nothing left for those of you in Christ. No condemnation. That is the measure of the greatness of God's mercy. The extent of his faithfulness and his steadfast love. You are forgiven. Your sins are defeated. You are holy because you are one with Christ. And God has done all of this because of his great faithfulness. He has done so because he told Jacob and Abraham thousands of years ago that he would do so. We see this all prophesied here with the, the coming of a shepherd king in the book of Micah. He was to be born in Bethlehem, born to die for the sins of his people. He said, what does that have to do with Abraham? What do we have to do with Abraham? God promised Abraham that he would be the father of Israel? No. That he would be the father of many nations. That his offspring, his descendants, would be more numerous than the stars in the heavens. 
And in Galatians 3, we read that Christ is the offspring, the promised offspring of Abraham, and that through him, by grace, through faith, we all become children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. In this way, God has displayed his faithfulness and his steadfast love to Abraham. There are billions who have become children of Abraham from all the nations of the world. God's faithfulness to Abraham is being fulfilled in your midst. So how do we live in dark days? Remember that there is no one like the Lord. He is full of mercy. He's abounding in steadfast love. His steadfast love has been given to billions and his faithfulness never ends. The darkness doesn't stand a chance. This is a call for faithful endurance. Whether it's societal darkness, whether it's personal, whether it's relational darkness, see the Lord is your salvation. He is your light. His faithfulness is new every morning and it never ends. That is how we endure the darkness. Let's pray.